I'm going to introduce our next speaker. Uh, Kirk Geithner is a physician assistant residing and working in the East Texas area. Kirk works in a large single specialty group with one NP and 10 board certified dermatologists, including three Mohs surgeons and two dermatopathologists. He is past president of the East Texas PA Society and has worked with multiple companies for advisory boards and guest promotional lecturing. If Kirk could be anywhere he would, uh, anywhere else than right here in beautiful Orlando with us right now, he'd be working with the Mercy Ships International serving underprivileged in third world nations. Thank you all, give a welcome to Kirk. Today we are gonna do some uh, different things. And I also want to say that I'm not up here to bash industry. Whenever somebody looks at this title, they're like, oh my gosh, what are you going to tell us? What are you going to, who are you going to trash? I'm not going to try to trash anybody. I'm not going to try to, um, I don't know, anybody from industry in here, by the way? Okay, let me take that back. I'm going to really take these, no, I'm kidding. I'm going to really take some people down. No, I'm kidding about that. Um, I also would like to say, before, first off, there are three things that we need to get done about soaps and cleansers. One, there needs to be a standardized irritability profile listed on the box. The second thing, there needs to be some kind of a pH value. And the third thing, <laughs> now I am from Texas. That's my Rick Perry impersonation, if anybody get it. And I apologize that I'm from Texas because I'm from Texas. You know, unlike the uh, nice lady over here who was really offended by the uh, St. Louis comment. Man, I don't know, what do I say to Rick? How do we get him to like just stop? I don't know, I like the guy, we didn't know. That's all I can say is we didn't know. I've seen him in other debates, I've seen him do other things. I've never seen him sit up there and not say anything for 53 seconds or to look like he was drunk on pain medications or whatever. Anyway, today we're here to talk about the dirt on soap. First off, what is the idea of clean? It's based on our own individual concepts of hygiene, health, privacy, individuality, maybe religion, fears, sexuality. We use this term and its anonym in many forms of speech to represent numerous ideas. It might mean without dirt, without impurities, fresh, it's washed. You had a clean test flight, it's a clean wound, doesn't have infection. Maybe you have a clean mind, you're morally sound, it's a clean joke without obscenity. It's a clean break. It might be a simple design, clean lines without a criminal record. He's got a clean slate uh, to prepare for meals. I clean the, the fish, I clean forgot. Free from addiction, I've been clean and sober, well-dressed. Now there's a clean dude. All right, this is one of my favorite ones. I had an endoscopy, I got all cleaned out. Wholly and completely, clean cut through, swindled. I was taken to the cleaners, mind your own business, keep your nose clean, the smell of clean of pine, clean foods, maybe for religious purposes, usually not a pig. What about the Anthony, the dirty? Oh, foul, unclean, dirty smoke, dirty trick, dirty joke, dirty work, dirty talk. Uh, dirty magazine if it's pornography, dirty cheat, dirty bomb, dirty blonde, dirty dog, or maybe in the positive, you dirty little girl. Anyway, but the question is, can we be clean? All right, so, ugh. actually, most of our cells in our body are not human. They're actually microbial. The ratio is about 10 to 1. Don't tell this people to our delusions of parasitosis. They might say, see, I told you, you don't know all the bacteria. Humans are actually super genomes with two genomes, the human being 25,000 genes, and then the environmentally acquired human microbiome over one million genes. In contrast to the human genome, the uh, microbiome is actually flexible. It can be mod modified by foods, drugs, environment, products. Our microbes uh, are vital to our health, though. They can break down otherwise ingestible foods in the uh, GI system. They help make vitamin K, the B, the B vitamin folate, they help shape our immune system. So, we can't be completely clean, but how do we end up 
doing what we do, taking a bath. Everybody take a bath today? Yeah? With that, uh, what was it, the bamboo cream? Ooh. I love it when my bamboo's creamy. Yeah, how do we get to this point? Where everybody takes a bath, you put on lotion. Maybe people take two baths a day. Maybe some people take three baths a day. I love seeing those guys. It's like, okay, quit taking so many baths, and then your, your dermatitis is going to be better. <clears throat> also, just with the specific use of water. Why do we use so much water? So let's look at the history of bathing here. 2500 BC, Babylon, first record of soaps manufactured, written on a clay tablet, described somehow combining animal fats and lye. Legend states that these ashes were probably from a burnt offering, and they came down the uh, little hill, the, the, the temple, mixed with water, and, and people noticed that if they washed their clothes or washed their laundry, whatever, closer to that, it foamed up and it might have cleansed better. Okay, but they really don't know, we really don't know the use of this. Now the Odyssey, the old book where Odysseus, uh, traveled around, uh, mentioned bathing several times. It was described with rubbing with warm water and rubbing the body with oil, okay? And he would, uh, in particular, he um, would come into a house, and every time he would leave, he'd take a bath, uh, and they would describe him as looking like a god after he had cleaned himself off. Uh, the ancient Greeks re uh, cleansed themselves for health, and soaking in water was one of their major treatments by physicians. Now, Hippocrates believed soaking in hot and cold waters could bring the four humors into balance. Everybody heard of the four humors, right? You got black, yellow, phlegm, and blood. So essentially, if you fillet somebody open, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see black, yellow, <coughs> phlegm, and blood. Interestingly, black bile uh, is actually melancholy. Melancholy. Everybody heard of melancholy? If you're, you know, I don't, I don't feel good. I'm melancholy. That actually meant that you probably had gallbladder disease, which was right here. And if you were a hypochondriac, everybody talking about the different parts of the quadrants of the, of the stomach, that was usually around the hypogastric area. It's right around, excuse me, right around here, hypo, hypochondriatic area. So it, you probably had gallbladder disease. It's a little interesting. In 1400 BC, the city of Crete, at least, had running water and drains and at least one bathtub. It was in the king's palace. 500 BC, bathing becomes popular in ancient Greece. Hey, they got a god about it, right? Hygieia. So if you've got a god, you've got to have places to go take a bath. So public baths started becoming common. And then what you would do is you would go to a gymnasium, which literally translates to the naked place. All right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who likes to work out naked? No, it's okay. Don't raise your hands. Uh, so what these guys would do is in the morning, there was times of the day when people would go. Guys would, typically working guys would go early in the morning. Take all your clothes off, you get down on the ground, you throw some dirt on yourselves, rub oil, and you might tussle, wrestle, throw things, run around. And then you would go into these baths, scrape yourselves off, okay, with something called a strigil. All right, this is an example of a strigil right here. This was our first baths right here. We basically just exfoliated and took all this stuff off. Um, it looks kind of like one of those little straight-edge razors that we used to use, but I've seen this picture before, but I never really thought what it was. I never really understood it. What you have is two guys here, right? Towel over there on the, uh, on the, on the far left. Uh, over on the far right, that little thing hanging down is actually just some oil. Uh, and in the middle, there's a little handle you can pull and get some water. So <clears throat> I don't know where this guy on the left, uh, it looks like he's telling him, no, don't stridgle me there. I said, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But this is kind of the idea of how we used to get clean uh, after we would work out. Washing was done usually with cold water, not hot. That was feminizing. Debate about hot water versus cold water began about this time. Now, Plato advocated hot baths only for the old and the ill. And the Spartans rarely bathed. Now, as a, when they're, they're babies, it would actually give them kind of like a cleansing bath in wine, which probably had some aseptic techniques to it there. Uh, but such indulgences as taking a bath, no, no, no. That's going to cause you to be weak and uh, sick. 
In contrast to the Greeks, though, the Romans, nobody's heard of Roman bath. That's kind of a popular thing that people, the popular term. The Romans exercised because they liked taking a bath. It made their bath more enjoyable. They used warm water, some perfumed oils. But by the second century BC, the bath had become an ordinary expected part of daily life. A Roman bath was proceeded from warm to hot to icy cold water to wake themselves up after exercise, usually had at least one scraping, sometimes a massage, and it was a big place for social networking. I go to the gym probably three, four times a week, and let me, let me just say, it doesn't matter how much money you have, who your wife, who your kids, who your parents are, when you're in the gym and you're standing there around the shower, the big dude that's in really good shape wins, okay? It's, 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 it's kind of like an equalizer almost, you know, hanging out like this. Small vials of gladiator or athlete sweat after they got themselves stridgled off also could be sold to their fans as face cream. Yeah, I know, but think about what we have in lipstick. You know one of the common things in lipstick is actually fish scales, okay? So let's not get too, uh, you know, yeah, it's gross, but probably not too bad. But because of the nudity, the relaxation, the warm water, Prostitution became a close companion to the bathhouse, and Pompeii's biggest brothel was actually next to one of its largest bathhouses. Everybody remember Pompeii got destroyed by the volcano? Sex was literally painted on the walls in these big frescoes. It'd be above these different rooms, and different paintings would be above the different rooms. You might have somebody getting penetrated over here, some oral sex over here, maybe a threesome and somebody eating a fish over on this side, and I think it was like an advertisement about what you might be able to find in each room. It'd be like, hey, I'll Take door number four. Wait, 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 is that a guy on the bottom? No, no, hang on, let me go back over here to the, you know, literally, it was, it was very open place, very common, and a little scary maybe, but around 200 AD, with the rise of Christianity, the fall of the Roman Empire, the bathhouses begin to close and fall out of favor because Christians, in their effort to be so distant from any other religion that was out there, and other religions had methodical uh, and uh, ceremonial washings, okay, uh, they just shunned bathing completely. All right? Now, Jewish people wash their hands, Muslims wash their hands, a lot of Christians continue to wash their hands, but the idea that Jesus put on everybody was, um, you know what, it's really what comes from the inside that makes you dirty, it's not what's on the outside. Everybody's probably heard the, the, the outside of the cup being dirty, but you know, the, you, you neglect the inside. So, Clement of Alexandria, one of the uh, second century Christian teachers, guided Christians on visiting baths because they were around. He said, well, there's four reasons you can go. Cleanliness, warmth, health, and pleasure. Now, women can go for cleanliness and health, all right? Uh, generally, after menstruation, it might be a time to go clean. Uh, men only for health. And then in uh, 374 AD to 1419, uh, St. Jerome, he's pretty well quoted, said, he who has bathed in Christ has no need of a second bath. All right? Now, y'all better think about that timeline right there, right around, you know, three to four hundred. Keep that in mind. Now, cleanliness remained an important aspect in Jewish and Muslims' customs, like I said. Perhaps the cleanest people could have been Jewish women who bathed around 12 times a year, corresponding to menstruation, seven days after their cycle ended. Everybody remember the story of Bathsheba? She's up taking a bath. Isn't that seven days after the cycle's over when you ovulate? Right? I mean, no wonder she got pregnant and he had to kill her husband anyway. Um, but during medieval times, the use of incense started to become popular in public places to mask the prevailing body odor. The return of the Crusaders brought back uh, kind of a steam bath called a hammam. Uh, and uh, within 100 years, this was now getting commonplace again. People were going back to baths, okay? But it's been a pretty good while. These new public baths, though, unfortunately, 
quickly became locations for sexual encounters and professional services. And there was a saying around that time is that if your wife can't conceive, let her go to the baths and you stay home, all right? The spread of syphilis, or what was known as the French disease at that time, and morality standards completely closed the bathhouses in 1417 in London, all except in a few private homes, because they were pretty expensive. You had to heat massive amounts of water. You had to have clean water. It had to be running. Uh, so it was not the easiest thing to do. But what really changed it, what really shut things down, what really changed people's minds about this was the bubonic plague, or Black Death. It began around 1347, eventually killing 25 million people, like a third of the world's population. And in 1348, uh, Philip, King Philip of uh, VI of France asked the University of Paris to figure out what this was. And they said, well, there's these Saturn and Pluto and Mars, and they're all in a line, and it's causing the Earth to open up and release all these bad vapors. So you've got to stay out of the bath. Because when you're clean, you can see your pores. And what they believed is that this disease, whatever was in the air, would get in your pores, and that's how you got sick. So for the next 500 years, bathing was reserved for only the ill and for ceremonies. Kind of went back and forth between hot and cold baths. Uh, it was important to maintain plug pores, to preserve the crucial balance of the humors, and to prevent the entry of disease. Bathing is dangerous, an extreme medical treatment to adjust the humors. That was the idea. And it wasn't just soap, okay? It wasn't the strigil. It was water in general. People just absolutely had a fear of it. Here's a bathing record of King Louis VIII, the French king, 1600. At age six weeks, his head was rubbed with butter and almond oil. The baby's hair was not combed again until he was nine months old. At the age of five, his legs were washed for the first time in tepid water, and he was put in a bath of water at the age of seven for the first time with his sister. Ugh. The first thing my two-year-old says to me when I open the door in the morning, he's like, Daddy, I pee pee, I go bath. I mean, he loves the water. That's what we do now. We bathe our kids. I could not imagine not giving my four-year-old daughter, whose birthday is today, happy birthday, baby, uh, a bath until she was seven. It just sounds disgusting, but that's what people did. That was the fear. said, if you got in water, you're going to get sick. Didn't they smell? Well, yes, they smelled. But when everybody stinks, no one does. And you get used to it. Okay, um, you know, where do we go? Yes, right there, hang on. So, now this is in contrast to, let me just say, everybody remembers not too long ago, people smoked a lot, okay? Some people still smoke, but I mean, the idea is that you go to a restaurant, you'd go to outside, you'd go someplace, you'd smell cigarette smoke, and you just got used to it. My father smoked, that was what he smelled like. Now when I have patients come in and they, and they smell like uh, stale cigarettes, it reminds me of my dad. I mean, it's, 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 it, smells can be very, very uh, memorable, and you also can just kind of adjust to them. Now, Napoleon, in contrast, this is a couple hundred years later, but actually liked taking a bath, but he also liked the smell of things. And he, on one instance, wrote home after he was out in battle to his wife, Josephine, and said, baby, I'm coming home. Don't take a bath. Okay? So does anybody know what their actual husband or wife typically has uh, their odor? Everybody has some kind of an odor, but in this society today, we probably really don't know because we're so clean and sterilized. The sin of menstruation in some societies actually was a sign of health and fertility. Now, here's the next way we got clean, okay? Around 1626, Louis Savoy was an architect. He helped design the Louvre. This was his musing here whenever he was considering building some mansions and chateaus around France. He said, with linen, we don't need a bath. We can do without it. Now, 
the ancients, I love this thing, the Greeks and Romans needed baths because they failed to understand the cleansing property of linen. He called them ancients, which was just a couple hundred years ago. That was just 300 years you know, prior. So calling them ancients, saying that in what, in literally what happened is linen became a fashion statement. Okay? You had this big, long, hairy smock that you would put on. All right? And what you would do typically every day is you would change, excuse me, you would change your undershirt, this little cami thing. You would change it every day. And it began to be a fashion statement where you showed a little bit of white on the collar. Up here, you showed a little bit of white hanging out, and that let people know you were clean. Okay? So think about just the invention. Just imagine me in a suit up here. You're going to see this right here. You're going to see a little bit hanging out. Now today I'm showing you I'm clean because I've got my white undershirt on. But it's just, it's, it was fashion. Now, hands were washed, luckily, frequently. The feet seldom, the head rarely. That's why people started wearing those big white powdery wigs is because their head was so greasy. And during the Spanish Inquisition, damning evidence that somebody had not converted over to Christianity was if they were known to bathe because Jews and Muslims still had their ceremonial baths. It was almost like a pride issue uh, around this time. And so for some Christians, if you just were not going to take a bath and if you just were uh, pretty dirty. Imagine this. Imagine you see my hands. They look pretty clean. My face is okay. Might, you might see a little bit of smudge on it. Now, take my shirt off. What you're going to see is dark, ichthyotic, broken kind of skin. That's what we were dealing with back then, okay? You looked good from the outside, but inside, underneath your skin, was just absolutely filthy, all right? Kind of yucky, but that's what we did. Bathing was actually prescribed by doctors this time. They called it the balenology. It was a professional responsibility. They had claims for healing for every ailment and condition. Water could be either near boiling or ice cold, depending on what malady you needed to treat. And patients were usually clothed, okay? So this was the reintroduction of the bath was by our profession. Cold baths were more popular and described as a terror and surprise that excites the drowsy spirits to contract all their tubes and membranous vessels, by which all sensation is more lively and all actions of the body more strong, and the stupid mind is made powerfully excited. Anybody ever taken a cold bath? Oh my word, I can't stand them. When I was down in Central America, that's what they had. I mean, you, you just, it was cold water, and it wasn't like a bath where we think about it. You'd turn it on a little bit, and you'd kind of get some, splash it on, and you'd try to you know, clean off, and you'd try to get some and rinse off like that. And, uh, miserable, and my tubes were very tight, and vessels, whatever. I was powerfully excited. But who needs physicians when a cold shower or getting wet can pretty much solve anything? So books and essays began to appear on bathing, and the use of water, still soap was rarely used for the body. It was kind of uh, same for the wealthy and educated who knew how to make it and could afford it. Well, in a sermon in 1791, all right, so this is a couple hundred years later, after uh, uh, you know, about a thousand years later, John Wesley uh, used a Hebrew proverb, cleanliness is next to godliness. Everybody's heard of that one before, right? He was actually talking about changing your shirt, okay? But the idea was that people started to take notice a little bit about bathing and about the use of water. You didn't have to have a doctor prescribe it for you. Indoor water and bathrooms first started appearing in England and in France were known as Lou à l'Anglaise, or the English place. Well, in France, they didn't really know what to do. They would ask, where do I need to go to the bathroom? Usually there's a chamber pot, okay, which is basically just this little pot you go and you do your business in, you slide it back under the bed or wherever. Well, in England, they would start having holes in the ground in places, uh, in, in, inside, maybe with some running water. 
And the French didn't know what to do, and so they would just defecate on the floor and leave their little packages up there. Uh, and the English started to kind of uh, abhor them, and there was some fighting and bickering about this. But everybody has heard of Skip to My Lou, right? Skip, skip, skip to the English place. That's where that came from. By 1830, there were 78 public baths now in Paris, up from two in 1643. Beginning in 1830, the idea of the skin's respiratory function began to capture the attention of scientists. Studies were done on shaved horses, these poor things, that were then covered in tar. Well, the horses died. So they thought, you know, you can't completely have plugged pores, right? Look at these horses, they died. Well, the, the horses lost thermoregulatory control, Okay. They also did studies on pigs where they had some pigs that they let wallow in the mud. They had other pigs that they scraped and washed every day. Well, the pigs that they scraped and washed every day uh, gained more weight eating less food. So they started to think, oh man, you know what? Maybe the pores don't need to be kind of closed up all the time. Soap, the, kind of the new soap was first mentioned in a hygiene book in 1830 in France uh, called La Cabinet des Toilets and was not to be used every day, that was too dangerous, but the general population still feared bathing. They're still worried about black death, still worried about their pores getting open, they're worried about things entering their body. They said people who take baths die young. He died in the bath, so if somebody's sick, they take him to the hospital. The first thing you do when you get to the hospital is you give that patient a bath, but if he died real quick, they blame the bath and not the disease. And then, you know, they had little things that said, the more the ram stinks, the more the you loves him. So they kind of liked fragrances, but around that time, Anton Philip van Leeuwenhoek, the father of microbiology, if you remember that, visualized cells, microorganisms, and bacteria, and uh, you know, the belief was that disease spread through spontaneous generation, so if I get a bunch of oily rags and I throw them in the corner, a rat's gonna pop out of there, That's, that was what they believed, and also through miasma, or the bad air. So Leeuwenhoek is seeing the stuff that's actually causing it, and Louis Pasteur demonstrated that air was not the cause of disease, and fermentation was not caused by spontaneous generation when he did the swan neck duck flask. People still didn't want to grasp this. Even when Joseph Lister, between 1883 and 1897, uh, started using carbolic acid, or phenol, to sterilize surgical in instruments and to clean wounds, which led to reducing post-operative infections that made surgery safer for patients, People didn't want to believe that something from outside could really affect your health and what was going on until Listerine, okay, sounds crazy. Listerine, which was marketed as a floor cleaner, okay, and it had the same chemical composition that Joseph Lister was using. It had phenol, had carbolic acid in it. They used it as an oral antiseptic and advertising began to change people's ideas about what clean was, okay? Based on fear and the possibility of offending others. Now, the rest of my little lecture here, I want you to put yourself in the mind frame of this is all new to you, okay? Because marketing and what we've been told and what we do to our bodies is pretty much based on our perception of what you think of me or what I think of you, okay? How's your breath today? The sale of Listerine jumped from 100,000 in 1921 to over 4 million in 1927 with this question. It said, hey, if your breath's bad, you won't be welcome. Play it safe, use Listerine. They came up with a term and said everybody has it. Only Listerine succeeds. Often a bridesmaid, 
This was their slogan. Never a bride. It's because you've got bad breath. You've got halitosis. That was their term. And it made them from, what was it? 100,000 to 4 million by telling people that they had a problem. They had studies done. Dentists would say, yes, I have frequently, my, all my, my clientele has halitosis, but I don't know how to talk to them about it. I don't know what to do about it. They interviewed doormen. Yeah, four out of 10 people I hate to open the door for because they've got such bad breath. That's how it kind of started, okay? Advertising right now really took a huge boom in this area, and soaps and cleansers were right behind. Just like uh, Pepsi, Diet Coke, Coke and everything is today, or maybe Bud and Coors Light, where you just see massive commercials about it, the advertising business back, hint, back then started to focus on soaps. There was a huge profit margin, and there was a bunch of soaps. They were easy to be made, and this was the idea. Here's one of the first commercials for ivory soap. You only need one, by the way. Ivory soap, pure, first quality, not expensive, will wash anything and no chapping, okay, yeah. So you see this guy, he's out here in the woods, he's got his bar of ivory soap, see it's floating in the, uh, in, the, in the lake right there. He's washing his hands, you can see that he's probably washed like his little uh, jacket back there, maybe who knows else, he's got his utensils back there, he's probably washed, maybe even washed his pickaxe, okay, wash anything. But that's not selling us enough though. No, 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 we need to bring it inside. We need it to be the great American eye-opener. Is an ivory soap bath, a quick massage from head to toe with a mild bubbling copious ivory lather, a plunge into clear cold water, all right? And one enjoys that feeling of exhilarating cleanliness which gives mind and body a running start on the day's work and play. Ivory soap, 99, 44, 100% pure. Ivory was essentially marketing itself against what was called Castile soap, which was a little bit more expensive. It was made from olive oil from Spain. This 99, 44, 100% pure was saying that they didn't have any impurities that the Castile soap did. It means nothing to us, essentially. It was made to float on purpose because back then, you didn't want to lose it, okay? When you bring it inside, it's not quite as important, but when you only take a bath, oh, you know, maybe once a week or something like that, you might not get so much chapping. You might not have so many problems. I'd just like to know who this guy I think he is with the big tassels on and the window open about to take a bath in cold water without a fence. People would be peering in, that wouldn't be me. Anyway. But that's not selling us enough either. We don't want it to be an eye-opener. We want it to be a relaxation too. Mom's on the warpath, watch out. Why ruin the evening, mother? Housework on hot days is bound to leave you tired and cross. To make evenings with your family the best part of the day, try this pleasant treatment for nerves, okay? No, we're talking about cleanliness anymore. Every afternoon, get in the tub with a cake of new ivory soap and relax, okay? So, not just to clean, not to clean everything, not just to wake yourself up. Now it's gonna be for the relaxation. And sorry, this is a racist commercial that was pulled, um, but they were marketing it any way possible. Little, what looks like a African-American boy jumps in and he turns out to be white. Now this probably is almost accurate in how, how dirty people were. But I want y'all to pay attention to is up here at the top. I have found pear soap matchless for the hands and complexion by special appointment to Prince of Wales, advertising by celebrities, okay? Now you've got the dancers, the flappers, actresses, Prince of Wales starting to come out and say, hey, this is what we do. This is what you should do too. Other products that came out about that same time, not to step on Dr. Hill's lecture here, but we're gonna talk just a second about antiperspirants. First one was called Odorono. 
It was invented by a Cincinnati surgeon who, when he was standing over surgery field, didn't like sweating on it, so he came up with this alum or aluminum chloride solution to put on himself. Well, his daughter used it and realized, hey, I don't sweat under my arms so much anymore. Started making it and made the product odor, oh no. Okay, other things, I put this Kotex up there only because it was just kind of interesting that Kotex actually comes from cotton-like texture. Uh, and it was made from bandages, from wood fiber, army, it was actually just used for bandages first, but then the nurses brought it back when they were over there hoping at World War I, they brought it back and we started using it as sanitary pads. How about FDS, feminine deodorant spray, 1966, a Swiss invention, which did never take off over there, but hey, sell it to us Americans because we'll believe anything. Your teddy bear loved you no matter what, but you know what, during this feminist movement, no, 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 no. Everybody's talking about the orgasm and things like that, no. Your teddy bear loved you, but he's not going to because you just might stink. Very, un very, very unfortunate. Very, very unfortunate kind of message we're sending here. Luckily, this product, uh, which sold like gangbusters, there was 400 different products that came out kind of marketing the same thing, tanked whenever some of the fluorocarbons in it uh, that caused it to dry fast on the skin started becoming outlaw. Now we got teeth bleaching. All right, no, you, got, you, can't, you can't stink, you can't smell, you can't have any spots, your teeth have to be white, you can't have halitosis. Let me tell you, I brushed my teeth before I got up here. Why? Because do I think y'all can smell my breath? No, but I'm mentally handicapped, just like everybody else that thinks that it's just, do I have halitosis? Am I gonna offend anybody? You have to kind of worry about all this stuff. Well, so what is so? Let's kind of move on a little bit here. I think I was just trying to make my point that we're told what to believe by some people, typically in the name of money. Soap is a cleansing and emulsifying, causing me a liquid state. Agent usually made by the action of an alkali on a fat or fatty acid, consisting essentially of sodium, potassium salts of such acids. Surfactant, which actually just means surface acting, are compounds that lower the surface tension of a liquid. Uh, they're regulated by the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. However, if it was made like the old-timey soap was, was basically just using animal, uh, you know, animal fat and potash, uh, and doesn't claim to do anything except cleanse, it does, it's exempt from those studies. Uh, the product claims, if the product claims it's for a disease state, then it moves to the FDA requirements and must meet a different criteria of analysis. Now that's important because you won't see many things say that it's, that's why things are beauty bars and um, cleansing tools, but they're not gonna say it's specifically for, if, you know, if they just make cleansers and they don't make any other products, they're gonna try to keep themselves from being exempt uh, by the FDA regulations by not claiming anything. So how do you make it? Well, let's say you get a hardwood tree, you cut it down, burn it. Uh, you get water, you start pouring it through the ashes, collect the water, keep pouring it through there. What you're making is lye, potassium hydroxide, KOH, okay? Uh, the, the manufacturer prepared is actually sodium hydroxide if you're gonna go buy lye over the counter now. Then you get some fat, okay? Beef, which was called tallow, that's an important word to remember right there, or pig, and it renders a harder soap. You can also use chicken, you can use different kinds of fats, but the, it's not as good. If you use whale fat, it turns out kind of a funny color, maybe black. You remove all the solids, uh, cool it, keep the white heart portion, mix the, uh, the lye and the tallow together, and boom, there's your soap. That's essentially how you can make it, okay? Or you can just put it in the Soap Master 2000 there, where you crying, grush, and boil and melt. Wait, this can't be ivory because it's got a bug. So what you're making, though, when you're making soap is, or cleansers, is what's called a mycel, a surfactant molecule that has a hydrophilic head, hydrophobic tail, and the mycel size can change things. Little mycels, okay, uh, are, mono, are monomers. Big ones, 
like might be baby cleansers, make big micelles, the head end, the uh, hydro, uh, hydrophobic head, the bigger you make that, the more gentle the cleanser is typically on your body. Um, you can combine a bunch of different kinds of surfactants and you'll see that in some of the more gentle products uh, and they don't cause the, they don't break off into those little monomers and irritate and insert and go in the skin. Can germs live on soap? Well, yes, unfortunately, gram-positive bacteria, negative fungi can live on the skin. So you need some kind of preservative system. Now, preservatives aren't bad, okay? I mean, we, we have to preserve things. Um, they uh, can cause, in some people, allergic reactions, inflammation, potentially fatal infections if you don't have it. You get septicemia, tetanus, fungal infections, cellulitis, folliculitis. Bacterial and fungal contamination of personal care products can occur through regular use, and this is unfortunate, regular use by consumers, dirty fingernails, family use, environmental storage, say it's in a humid bathroom or shower stall. Preservatives are curl naturally in fruit, okay, and some other things to protect from infection. Similarly, preserved ingredients which are added to personal care products to inhibit the growth of uh, microorganisms like benzyl alcohol is in plants and fruits and trees, methylparabens are in blueberries, sodium benzoate is in uh, metabolite of cinnamon. Interestingly, though, if you've got a product that says it's not, it doesn't have a preservative, that doesn't mean it's safe or doesn't mean it's actually preservative-free. It means it has no regulated preservative ingredient. It may contain alternative ingredients that have some kind of efficacy. And the FDA does not actually set some kind of standards. They just say it must, be, it must have adequate preservation, but they don't say it must have adequate preservation so it can fight off this much candida, this much uh, uh, aspergillus, this much fungal, this much bacteria. Okay? It just says they have to have adequate. If it's uh, an anhydrous product or it doesn't have any water in it, it might not require an, uh, an added preservative ingredient to assure safety, but then sometimes they still add them. Okay, th women, think about your mascara. That's, that's just oil. It doesn't actually require preservatives, but what do you do with it? Stick it under there and you rinse it off. So you're putting water back into your mascara, so they've got to put a preservative in it. They're thinking ahead of us, really. Alternative ingredients to preservatives, which are the traditional preservatives, Usually not regulated preservative ingredients, sometimes only weakly effective, such as chelating agents, phenolytic antioxidants, more organism-specific than traditional ingredients, uh, and toxicology assessments may be less rigorous in dermal allergy uh, than potential. This is just an idea about everything that can alter uh, how well a preservative is going to work in one of our personal cleansing products, the concentration, the pH, the temperature, where it is, how it's dispensed, um, and what kind of bacteria it might be coming into. So if we look at the back of a soap or back of a cleanser, it should read similar to some of the food we have. You're gonna have an ingredients list, right? The higher up, the higher the concentration. Less than 1%, put it in any order. Color additives always last. And usually follows a standardized naming system by something from the uh, NC, or the International Nomenclature Cosmetic Ingredients, that wants botanicals to use their Latin names and fragrance to list it as fragrance or perfume, right? refers to specific well-characterized ingredients allows for tracking and safety on a global basis. Basically, if you tell somebody you're allergic to this, they can go and look for that product. But, everything's a chemical, okay? I don't want anybody to go and tell their patients, hey, this product is natural. Not that it doesn't mean that it's not natural, but everything is a chemical, okay? Whether it's natural or not. If it says orange peel, that is what it actually has. Okay, so you can break the things down or you can not break the things down, but when you look at the ingredients in it, everything really just comes down to chemistry. Um, let's say it's natural, okay, gardenia. 
You break down the chemical components of gardenia, one product in there actually can cause testicular atrophy. Okay, but if I put it in a product and I say it's all natural, and I just say it's got gardenia flowers, right? You know, it's, it, it, it's, it muddles it. It doesn't make it uh, so commonplace for us to be able to kind of look and understand what all's in it. And how about fragrances? It's supposed to be listed as fragrance or parfum. Well, if it's fragrance-free, it can still contain ingredients that impart a scent, as long as those ingredients are added for another purpose. Okay, so I might be able to say my, my product is fragrance-free, but if I've got it there as a preservative, I, it, I don't have to list it. If it's there to make a smell, I have to call it, all right? If it's unscented, it means that it's been formulated to have no scent, which is very difficult to do. Uh, that may contain some masking fragrances and other ingredients, like say benzyl alcohol. It actually smells like vanilla. It's one of the preservatives, okay? But I can get a smell out of it, uh, even though it's there for more likely a preservative. Fragrances are put in some different classifications. I hate this first one. I hate the first one. Essential oils. Essential, okay? That makes me think of essential amino acids, essential food, essential tests, essential something. No, you don't have to have it. It just means that it has the essence of whatever that is. It's a complex blend of natural chemicals, volatile or ethereal, extracted from plants, and not even actually oil. Don't have to have it, and it's not actually a true oil. It's usually prepared from pressing or distillation. Natural fragrances, composed wholly or one or more molecules, derives its entities, uh, purified natural sources, and synthetic is, well, synthetic. Common ingredients. This just goes through some of the lists that if you turn over the back of your soap, what you're usually going to see, okay? Colors for, you know, botanical ingredients. Might put a color, fragrance, skin protection, cleansing, colorant. Glycerin forms a humectant, and you all have this in your, uh, in, in, in your outline there. Lanolin forms a moisturizer, lubricant, forms emulsion. Anybody know what lanolin is? Bang, right there. Lanolin is from the apocrine grins of sheep. Anybody heard of Shrek? Several years ago, a little sheep wandered off, didn't get shorn like he should have every year. He avoided getting shorn for six years, ended up having 60 pounds of wool on himself, enough to make 20 wool suits. Put on 20 wool suits, go outside, stand in the rain, jump in the pool, see if you can move, okay? But cover yourself with lanolin, it makes the water go away. Shrek was able to uh, live, he got caught. <laughs> Poor little guy. Anyway. Uh, other things, polycortinum 7 inhibits static electricity in your hair. Uh, it's, got a negative, it's got a positive charge. Your hair is kind of slightly negative, so it binds to that. It kind of keeps static electricity down. Titanium dioxide, another common ingredient, can be a sunscreen, or they might just put it in your soap to uh, just make it so you don't see through it, just an opacifying ingredient. Triclosan, been used for over 40 years. Everybody heard a little bit about triclosan? Preservative, broad-spectrum antimicrobial debate over its safety and uh, is going on. This is on Dr. Oz, not that I'm all on Dr. Oz. Um, this is on one of his top 10 toxic chemicals list. They put this in everything, okay? I mean, it's in my Colgate total. It's in my dial antibacterial. It's on my shower curtain because it sits in the bathroom stall a lot. It's on the beds at the hospital to try to prevent bacteria. It's in a little bit too much for my taste, you know? And I don't know what happens when we just get a chemical and we just run with it for a long time and put it in everything. There's some concerns about gender mutations and frogs and fish with this. We'll see what happens, but I, I personally try to, and you know, and the thing about the uh, antibacterial soaps too, they've never been shown to kill more bacteria than a regular soap, okay? It's just supposed to grab it and wash it off. 
you know, and triclosan's got to sit on your skin for like two minutes before it actually has a whole lot of effective use. So other things, coconut oil, fragrance, palm oil, that's another um, surfactant. Anybody know what palm olive is made out of? Can you figure it out now? Palm oil, olive oil, instead of beef fat, pig fat, okay? Uh, you know, mineral oil, it's a uh, conditioner, a molly, and occlusive. Preservative ingredients retard bacterial growth. Uh, triclocarbons is a preservative and a deodorant agent. You can, that's in some of the antiperspirants. Um, how about ivory? Okay, what's in that one? Not too many things. Sodium tallowate. So when we see tallow, okay, if you have a patient that sees something that says, hey, you know what, I really am a, I'm a vegan, I want to be green, I don't want to hurt any animals, you need to tell them, avoid your soaps that have got tallow because it's going to be made out of animal fat. Also, uh, maybe some coconut oil, palm oil, water, sodium chloride is a thickener, sodium silicate to buffer it so it's not, so the pH isn't tin, I guess. Uh, magnesium sulfate, uh, it's used to increase the volume of product and they put some fragrance in there. Now there's a newer ivory out there that adds glycerin, is more of a humectant to try to be gentle on the skin, and tetrasodium EDTA. Tetrasodium EDTA is interesting. Everybody knows what uh, ring around the tub is, you know, or, so or soap scum. It's essentially the metals from the water, okay, so the chloride, the magnesium, calcium, whatever, binding to the soap and sticking on the outside. Put tetrasodium EDTA in there, it doesn't do it anymore. No more soap scum. No more little bubbles. What do you call those little, those, what are the little soap bubbles? Little guys that go around the side? Scrubbing bubbles, what was that? Soft soap? No, what, what's that product? Eh, well. How about Dove? Now, not a soap. We're gonna call it a beauty bar, okay? It was actually the first synthetic soap. They started making this around the, around the uh, World War I, World War II, uh, when there was all these restrictions and we were trying to conserve animals. We were trying to conserve fats. We needed to help the war effort. They came out with a, surf, a, surfet, a synthetic surfactant. But it does have some sodium tallowate or sodium palmate surfactant. Uh, lauric acid is another surfactant. Sodium isothenate is a salt that acts on fats and oils. Uh, we can just kind of go through this list right here. But there are some things that you'll notice that you're going to see betadine on here that can actually start to have some, uh, that might be on the true test, maybe some allergies. Um, it's also got some more sodium cocoate, palm carnate fragrance, sodium chloride, tetrasodium EDTA, titanium dioxide. That's why Dove is white. It's because they put titanium dioxide on it. Johnson's head to toe, excuse me. <coughs> they, they make this, uh, trying to really get it right on the, uh, right on the head with the uh, infant's pH skin of their skin, which is 6.6. Um, you know, they put water, cocomidal betadine, synthetic. Then they have these pegylated uh, sorbitan lauracate. This is going to be this real big, uh, you know, hydrophilic, excuse me, hydrophobic heads on there. Um, the pegylated 150, disturbative emulsifier, tetrasodium EDTA, polycortinum 10 reduces static electricity, cortinum 15, which is a preservative, anti-static agent, citric acid, um, helps chelate metals and bind and it, it adjusts the pH. Prel, the only reason I put this one in here, and this is all, y'all can go back and reference it, but Prel, the only reason I put this one here is because the pH is so high that you can actually curl your hair with Prel. <laughs> it's kind of wild. You can put it in there, put some curling, not that you'd want to, guys, but, uh, but then it's got ammonium lauryl sulfate and ammonium lauryl uh, sulfate, which is a little bit more aggressive. Uh, more on there. Now, Cetaphil Gentle Skin Cleanser, very popular one for us. Water, propylene glycol, sodium uh, lauryl sulfates or surfactants, but then lots of parabens. So if you've got a patient that is positive to uh, the true test on parabens, they really need to kind of avoid this one right here. It's got all three of the paraben sisters on there. Now, I didn't have this one on my slide originally, okay? 
but when Dr. Zerwis was talking about um, California Baby, I wanted to put it in a little bit because California Baby is unfortunately, and again, I'm not trying to slam them, I'm not trying to slam industry. It's a newer product that that's, uh, hasn't been out that long. They're not really playing the game with everybody else though, okay? I want you to look at what they've got. Water, aloe vera, okay? Dectal glucoside, lauryl glucoside, and this is co uh, corn, coconut, palm oil. This is um, their cleansers, okay? Organic quilia sapornia, soap bark. That's part of a tree where it's got some chemical properties similar to digoxin. Uh, it's got cactus in it. And it's got uh, candelula, um, violet tricolor extract, or pansy. A lot of flowers, yucca, vegetable glycerin, jojoba oil, vitamin E, um, panthenol, and then this is their preservative system down here. Caproglycine, undula, I can't even pronounce the things. Anyway, they're not using that NC, the international nomenclature kind of stuff. They're saying they have botanicals, they're using the Latin names, but they're not really playing the game with everybody else. Um, as far as I know, if anybody knows more, I'd love to know, uh, no safety studies, okay? No studies on infant skin, no studies on infant's eyes, no um, thing to really kind of, this is all they make, okay? They make things like this. They're not gonna have any kind of uh, claims other than just cleansing, okay? So they don't have to go under the FDA. They're just kind of out there doing their own thing. Uh, they might have no problem, might be a great uh, product. I would say the other thing to watch out for these natural things or the fact that, and I can't tell you who and I can't tell you where, but I will say I have seen studies where you've inoculated some of these natural products with, um, Aspergillus, that's the black mold in your shower, and Pseudomonas, and the more mainstream kind of soaps and cleansers, it didn't grow. And in some of these natural ones, it took over and thrived. I guess the recommendation would be if you're going to encourage your patients to use these products or try these products, please use the pump, okay? You have less likelihood of recontaminating inside when you use a pump look for the expiration date and follow it, okay? Uh, it's just one of those kind of things. So now what? We've only been using these kind of products for a little over 100 years, if that. Luckily, the cleansing of hands has always been in fashion, but I think what's gonna happen, okay? Now you gotta understand, marketing is kind of telling us what we're doing. Marketing is gonna kind of push us. Um, advertisers are gonna start telling us there's a new thing, there's something else that we need to be doing. We need to be aware, we need to be able to counsel our patients, we need to be on the lookout for these things. But I'm sure in 100 years, we're gonna look back, just like Louis Savoy, and call ourselves the ancients, and say, I can't believe they were doing that. They should have been doing this other thing all along. My guess right now, when you've got a whole bunch of cleansers and you've got a whole bunch of other products out there, it's gonna be the natural line that people are gonna be start driving to. And we just need to be cautious about those things, they haven't been out real long, they haven't been proven as well. We need to be aware that the more exposure, okay, the more likely they're gonna have problems, just like any other thing. The more you get used to it, the more you people are exposed to it, the more problems they're gonna have. A really good reference is something called cosmeticsinfo.org. You can, if your patient has a concern or a problem with a, with a particular product, you can type it in and find out what it is. And that's my time. Thank you guys.